0: and it's time for the seventh avenue project i'm robert polly today down and out in dogpatch
1: why don't you take a left here and then take a right on
0: 18th teresa Gowan is a sociologist she's at the university of minnesota now but back in the 1990s she used to live in san francisco i
1: was in my second year in grad school at berkeley and i i lived right off um, 24th street in the mission
0: there were a lot of homeless people passing through her neighborhood in those days and many of them were pushing shopping carts loaded with bottles and cans. You know,
1: kind of this rattle outside my window and I'd look out and there'd be like some 40ish, generally, guy with a, a cart and a bunch of bags tied around it. And I just, I just kept seeing these people and I, was, I, I kind of identified with them to some extent.
0: Now this was the 1990s, remember, during the tech boom, when a lot of people were getting rich. But down at the bottom, it looked like people were struggling. Maybe more than ever.
1: A whole bunch of people who are so poor, they're just living off of the scraps of other people, which is, of course, how it was before the welfare state. There was rag and bone folks. Um, It was a very um, important sector of, uh, you know, survival sector for poor people. So it's like, hey, well, this is what happens when you trash the welfare state. You know, you start getting a return of all of this.
0: So sort of a scavenger Mm -hmm. economy. Yeah, Uh, absolutely. Teresa wanted to know how this economy worked, who these people were how they got there, and how they got by.
1: I went out and just started talking to homeless folks. first person I talked to, I kind of went up to him and I said, oh, you know, I'm really interested in this recycling uh, gig you're doing. You know, what's can can, you, can I talk to you about it for a few minutes? And he was like, mm, yeah, all right. You know, he was, was a little taken back. But once he realized that I really wanted to talk about recycling rather than, like, how did you get to be homeless... He was much more interested in the conversation. And so I then kind of got him to agree to um, working with me. And so I started, I started um, going out and collecting cans with him.
0: She ended up spending years with the recyclers. She wrote about it in her book, Hobo's, Hustlers, and Backsliders, Homeless in San Francisco. A lot of it is set in the neighborhood known as Dog Patch, That's where many of the recyclers lived. Dog Patch is on the eastern side of the city, flush up against the bay. And in the years when Teresa was doing her work there, it was one of those neglected industrial zones where homeless people could camp or sleep in cars, more or less unnoticed and unharassed. A lot of them had fled tougher skid row areas like the Tenderloin and had made a kind of life for themselves in Dogpatch. They treated the recycling like a job and they worked pretty hard at it.
1: This area we're coming into now um, was one of the most lively homeless scenes, and we're just going to turn right down Illinois.
0: It's been ten years since she finished her research there, and Dogpatch has really changed. It's gentrifying. The warehouses and abandoned buildings are being replaced by trendy lofts and wine bars, and hundreds of the homeless who used to live there are mostly gone. The city's made a big effort to get homeless people off the streets in neighborhoods like this. They've used various methods, and it's apparently worked.
1: Illinois was kind of famous, um all along here because there was a huge um, number of people living in vans and cars along this street.
0: Well, Teresa and I went back to Dogpatch recently to see how it's changed and talk about what happened to the homeless there. She told me about her experiences working with the recyclers and about the history of attitudes toward homelessness and poverty. It turns out the events in Dogpatch are just the latest chapter of a very, very old story. And uh, I had such an interesting conversation with Teresa that instead of cutting this all down into some neat little package for a normal public radio slot, I'm just going to let the tape roll for two shows. Yes, it's a two-parter. We're going to hear some of the places we went, and in part two, some of the people we met. I hope you'll stick around for the whole trip. We began our walking tour of Dogpatch down near the waterfront. In the shadow of a power company substation, you're going to hear the electrical hum in the background. And a storage yard for city buses
1: um, there was there was a large group of recyclers who used to live um, like in in this area back here with the razor wire now, um, which is now a parking lot with razor wire around it and uh, I mean you it, at that time you still had to kind of climb through fences, but it was very easy to do and uh i remember the the hum from (laughs) from then you know they used to sort of say that they found it comforting after a while because they just kind of got used to it and it meant it meant home the power plant uh, here yeah 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 this chimney is rather a you know a classic sort of old industrial chimney and people enjoyed enjoyed being out here and and looking at the bay and i think that's one thing to kind of emphasize that there was this sort of sense of liberation from the Tenderloin and the more depressing um, parts of the homelessness scene out here. and. Um you know, enjoying watching the freighters, people would go up. I'll, I'll, I'll go up with you later to Mission Rock, and we can sort of see that. But I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the folks who, who lived who lived back in here.
0: Um, and, you, and you're pointing through this big metal gate that's all locked up we can't get through. Yeah. Like, it's through an area that's now all fenced <laughs> off with razor wire on top uh, around the PG&E facility. You're saying people used to live?
1: Oh, yeah. This group of recyclers I knew who lived back here, um, they had a sort of secure place, um, I think it was kind of over by this wall where the whole bunch of them would store all of their carts and the recycling that they collected. And they always had somebody who was sort of like roughly guarding it. But I remember them talking about their lives here like it was this sort of blue collar routine. And they would they would wake up in the morning and they'd hear each other start, you know, moving and getting going with, with the carts. They'd, they'd hear a bit of the sound of the carts. They're very noisy with the bottles in them, you know. And then they'd sort of drag themselves up and kind of go off in a convoy together. I remember this where one did guy. Go,
0: where did they head Wait, off for the day? Where did they
1: head? Yeah, they specialized in, like, south of market and downtown. And so they, they had a lot of, um, you know, huge corporate dumpsters that they used to go to downtown
0: so they'd be heading out for a couple miles from oh yeah this location
1: and they'd get up like four in the morning i you know right so yeah. i mean it would still still be dark they they'd go off down there and then they'd bring their first load back um in the early morning and but they you know they were just uh, a few within hundreds of people who were doing this and and i i suspect that you still might be able to see if you got up really early in the morning these great trains of people coming out from downtown with recyclables it was extraordinary when the first time I saw it i couldn 't believe it because I thought I was doing this project was a little bit ob- obscure i didn 't realize how big the scene was, and then I came over here and this is where like um, all of the recycling companies that these guys would sell to were on the east side of the city because uh, it was the more industrial side, and so everyone who was really serious about doing it um, would would bring their stuff over here and when, when I first saw, you know, maybe 50 guys in a row lugging these huge carts and sets of carts full of stuff from downtown, I was like, whoa, this is, this is a serious scene.
0: This is in the 90s we're talking about? Yeah, 90s, yeah, yeah. Roughly
1: what period? Um, I started doing the dog patch field work um, in 94, 95, and I was still out here in 2001
0: okay Mm -hmm. so and uh when did recycling become you know really popular when did the laws pass the redemption laws and things like that that made it a way to get at least some cash if you have no other means
1: yeah the california bottle bill um was absolutely crucial
0: now of course, I'm blanking on the date. I can look it up. <laughs> yeah, but that was I but think that, 80s, 1980s. Yes, maybe? it was. It was
1: in the 80s. I just don't remember which. But year it created it was.
0: this little underground economy. Yeah. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, it, it had existed before, but the bottle bill gave a huge stimulus by, you know, raising the rates that you could, that you could get for for glass um and, 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 cans. Then, and
0: then plastic recycling and all that too yeah yeah
1: the plastic was never so significant though because you you actually really couldn't get money except for mm. a very specific form of it
0: so it was mostly bottles and cans then?
1: it was bottles and cans but also cardboard and these guys were oh, yeah? like super responsive to the market wow. but you know when cardboard prices went up they would all switch onto cardboard and they would they they collect boxes and tubes you know um they would make these towers um, on their carts. So instead of being this sort of shopping cart with maybe 10 garbage bags slung around the edge of it, it would it would turn into this tower where they'd put bungees around these high stacks of, of cardboard. And that was kind of difficult because it was really unstable. It could get blown over oh, in wow. the wind yeah. really easily. So you had to have this huge strength in your arms to do this job. I mean, you really, you really do. It's... Uh, you know, it, it's that sort of isometric strength of just holding something mm. steady, you know.
0: Did you try it yourself?
1: I did. And, it, and I actually, I've, I have a problem with chronic tendinitis. And it really does come from that time when I was uh, trying to do the recycling. Um, you were trying to
0: just experience what they experienced? Is that what you're doing? Yeah. Now?
1: When I decided to do this project, I initially just thought, well, I'll go out and do it myself, you know. So I just well, I just went out there and, you know, found myself an old shopping cart and started started doing it. I was terribly bad. I made like $2 my first day, you know. <laughs> it was just pathetic. So you, you were a grad
0: student in sociology at, <laughs> mm-hmm. at UC Berkeley, yeah? hmm And as part of this initial doctoral work, right?
1: Well, yeah, and, and, and,
0: and this you started- was just
1: for a class when oh, I first started okay. doing it, and then it just expanded and expanded. Okay. I got totally into it, but but
0: you I- went out and you said, okay, I'm gonna mm-hmm. see how this recycling operates. Yeah, and I you got I'm yourself a uh, get yourself uh, a shopping cart. I start got pushing myself around? a
1: cart. I started pushing around. I started collecting things, and you know, it was very noticeable how people immediately treated me like I was homeless. You know. Uh, and I I wasn't looking any scruffier than I am today, you know, <laughs> just jeans. And you're whatever. pretty well dressed, actually. <laughs> well, let's <laughs> not be too nice. But, <laughs> but the point is, it's so identified with being homeless. And so I remember this Latino guy, um, you know, giving me this really sympathetic look and going and getting me stuff. And, and of course, I started feeling terribly guilty as soon as this happened, you know. <laughs> and then you know within the same day you know i i met a couple of of guys doing the recycling it was like super friendly to me really nice and one of them immediately was like oh i just found this woman's sweater it's really great like here you go and they were trying to give me homeless yeah
0: and they were helping you yeah yeah so you'd think that there'd be this uh you know rat race to get the recyclables Mm -hmm. among people who have so little and you're saying it was all cooperative and help, uh, mutually helpful? It, it was uh, amazingly,
1: it was amazingly co- cooperative. And I mean, one of the myths w- that was out there was that, oh, these, you know, homeless scum that do, you know, they're collecting the bottles and they're fighting over stuff and they're making all of this mess. And it was, it was such crap, you know, I mean, of course, there may have been a couple of incidents, but in general, the scene was super cooperative and, you know people actually went out of their way to not be competitive about things because they were, they were just so kind of happy to have something to do where they weren 't participating in that kind of hostile prison culture that so that happens in, in places like the Tenderloin. you know and they, they were just like, "No, this is our scene and it 's not like that and so they would tell each other about good places to get stuff and you know, and t- tell me you know but i mean it was funny that like, first day i i felt so guilty about being you know helped and you know thought being thought to be homeless like i was sort of being a spy you know i i just called up my professor and i was like i can't do this you know <laughs> this is it's like i have to tell people what i'm doing like i have to tell everybody i meet and he he said oh go on and go and tell them <laughs> so i just went home and i jumped on my bike and went right back out and tried to find the people I just met and said, like, <laughs> oh
0: so be upfront. say I'm a sociologist
1: yeah, yeah. and I'm faking it well I, I mean the thing is I wasn't really faking it because I didn't say anything about who you know I didn't say right I'm right. homeless no, or but, anything
0: no but, but faking it in the like, sense that you didn't really need to be recycling I didn't need in to, order to get it. your your meal that night
1: exactly and exactly.
0: so I mean here you are you know you're, you're cutting in on part of their turf their mm-hmm. territory their, their, their take for the day exactly in order to do your research so what was the reaction
1: they were very nice about it they just <laughs> laughed you know I mean there's <laughs> was this guy uh, Bill and Tony they, uh, and they were just these funny guys and they were like yeah I thought there was something funny about you you know
0: <laughs> <laughs> well you don't look like you've lived on the streets I mean you're you don't ha- mm-hmm. well you know there's wear and tear I, mm-hmm. people who live on the streets their bodies show it don't they
1: yeah, and no, you look no, like someone like they me who's lived in mm-hmm. a house, you know. Yeah, no, apartment. that's right. Although you know, you always get the new people on the street.
0: Yeah, um, it's true. Maybe they fresh-faced you know. newcomers. I mean, some of those
1: a- kids in the hate, you know, they're just like these blooming teenagers, and you know, you know, it's gonna if they stay there, it's gonna be pretty bad. But
0: are they starting kind of off there yet? There by choice in a way. This is an adventure. Uh, this is bohemian, and 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 then uh, homeless by necessity later on. Or are they already sort of? Uh, well, a lot, of those, a lot of those
1: folks have got really difficult situations at home. But, it's, you know, really it wasn't what I was studying because right. I, was, I was working with the, the, the somewhat older male, you know, homeless population, these guys who were, you know, it, it's a very sex-segregated scene, right? So, I mean, there was barely any women. In,
0: where, where were the uh, women?
1: Uh, there weren't women. I mean, that's the point. Like, When people are that poor, they, they're usually not together anymore. And the, the system separates people by gender. You know, the, home, the homeless shelter system does, right? There's far, there's far better services for women. Um, I mean, I don't want to make them sound great, but they, you know, there, there's, there was... In those days, it was uh, much easier to be inside if you were a female. They didn't want women to be having to sleep outside, whereas the men were having to do a lottery to, to stay in the shelters if oh. they wanted to be inside, and But it was also so much more dangerous for women that the women, you know, generally didn't want to be out here, whereas the guys were like, I would much rather be here than in the shelter. So there was, you know, there was a certain choice within horrible constraints going on to so like, yeah, I, if, if I have to be homeless, I want to do it my own way, hmm. which I became very sympathetic to, you hmm. know, because... The whole discourse from the city was like, we've, OK, we've opened up some more shelter beds. or they, There was this endless debate about how many they really were and how available they were between the advocates and the city. But the the shelter system was sort of used to bludgeon people out of public space from you know from a long time ago, really. What what do you mean bludgeon
0: people out of public space? uh, Sorry,
1: yeah, that's a bit vague. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it would be like we've got shelter beds. What are you doing out here? Ah, right. Um, And this is this is still the
0: discourse. But you're saying that there weren't enough beds. There was a lottery. No, there wasn't.
1: There wasn't enough beds. There was a lottery. I mean, you know, but they were turning over. They were turning uh, away. Twelve hundred people a month at the biggest shelter, you know, in, in the in the late
0: '90s, for example. Um, and then, and then, in and some th- cases, shelters were um, not terribly safe. Uh, I've talked to homeless people who say they get their stuff stolen more in shelters than some of their camping yeah. areas.
1: Well, that's right because you know the camping areas you can. You can e- well. You're either lucky enough to find something really private, or you get together with other folks and kind of and look after your stuff. And the shelters system kind of breaks down that solidarity. Um, I mean, I think this, I think the shelters are safer than the, than they used to be, um, perhaps. But the, the the level of disrespect and just misery in those places is is just awful. And well, you quote people depressing. in your book,
0: and also I've heard this directly from homeless people that mm-hmm. at least in some shelters they're smack up against people who are really sick, who are really disheveled, smelly, sometimes mentally ill, and it's really uncomfortable for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. You'd think, oh, well, you're on the street, so you could put up with anything. But no, I mean, it's actually better to be by their lights, better to be out here you know in this kind of environment we 're in right now than to be in a shelter like that,
1: oh, yeah, I mean, and, and even as a woman i would have, I would choose it to would be you? honest really, yeah, because I learned enough about how to survive out here by from doing this work that yeah
0: um, and by the way, why is it called dogpatch? Is that the official name? Would you find that on a Yes. You know, a tourist map of uh, San Francisco.
1: <laughs> no, it's, it's the old name for the, for the area. Um, I, don't, I don't know where it comes from, but actually a lot of cities you know, have, got, have got those kinds of names for areas. So, I th- you know, it's, it's, it's usually places which are quite run down, you know.
0: You know, I think that's, that's out of the Little Abner comic strip. I believe Dogpatch, you know. Oh, really? I think, yeah, it does goes back to the, like 1940s or earlier. Uh, and uh, so it would have been kind of a, a slangy nickname at one time, right? I'm guessing. I don't
1: know, I don't know. Well will you have to research that one. I I probably did know at some point. I've got the most appalling memory. I did too much marijuana
0: on those out here. Really? While doing your research?
1: Yeah, and isn't that awful? Oh, yeah. But you know, the thing is when you um, when you hang out with folks who are drug addicts, yeah, uh, it can be really boring, um, if you are not doing anything yourself. Um, and so, so, uh, um, I mean, not not that I didn't smoke weed before I did this research, but I, uh, yeah, I, I I I would I would smoke weed when, for example, like I was I was really close with this one group of heroin addicts out here for a while, and um, you know I would just I would smoke when they were shooting up.
0: <laughs> well, this is this is something I wanted to talk to you about about coming in as an academic sociologist. Um, and are, are there rules about participation uh, and distance, you know? Aren't you supposed to be just the person uh, at a huge remove, taking notes and observing? How could you...?
1: No, no. I mean, I think it really depends how you're trained. Now, for me, um, the guy who trained me, Michael Burvoy, um, really encouraged us to... Um, just take it for granted that we were going to be people in space that you don't just be a fly on a wall you're always going to affect what's going on Uh, and so instead you just kind of you try to be very reflexive about what your role is yeah self-aware right Yeah. just really aware about it like okay how am i behaving how are people responding to me what do i seem to represent to them how that how might that be affecting what i see what they say to me etc so i did a fair amount of that (laughs) And and also talk to people about it very openly, you know.
0: And that doesn't disqualify you then. Like uh, you got your dissertation and all of that. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, but really, if you if you know anything about hanging out with homeless folks, and not just homeless folks, like people do drugs and alcohol, right? And it's uh, it, if you're straight all the time, you stick out, you know. And um, I, I don't sm- smoke cigarettes, and I like weed, so it just kind of made sense, really.
0: We're walking along, um, I forget which one is this, Illinois? Illinois, yeah. We're walking along Illinois here, uh, down by the waterfront in San Francisco, yeah, and, and makes... we're seeing some um, kind of old Winnebago's park mm-hmm, here. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. M- these people are probably sleeping in these things, but, oh, yeah. but is that... Yeah. The word homelessness, you know, it, it could mean so many things. I and mean, It could mean literally sleeping in the gutter, or it could mean sleeping in a car, or even in a really you know big RV. Is that homelessness, too?
1: I mean, it is. It is homelessness, um, and... I think the reason I would say yes for sure is because these people suffer um, some of the same problems as folks without cars, um, of instability, of of being targets for policing. Now, um, one of the interesting things about here is that even when this area was completely just uh, abandoned they decided to put in these parking um, regulations so people couldn't sleep overnight. And, you know, so all of these folks who were li- living in their cars and vans were just, you know, playing this endless kind of run-around thing with with the cops, even though the, there was I zero see, yeah. pressure on parking. And
0: Yeah, we're talking about an area that's industrial that is completely dead at night, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But you have uh, some photographs in your book, or a photograph in your book, showing a one-hour parking uh, limit on some of these streets down here, which would mean, you know, being constantly on the go.
1: And and, and no parking between 10 and and 6 a.m., you know.
0: And do they enforce it? Do they have people down here?
1: Well, you know, the police don't have enough resources to enforce all of their codes everywhere at all times, as you know. So it just kind of goes in waves. Okay, but it gives um, them
0: the ability to say, get mm -hmm. out of here, you stayed longer than...
1: So, like right now, we've got we've got a bit of a return of the vehicular living, as you know, some of us call it, on Illinois going on here. I mean, it's not it's not on a huge scale, but definitely you can see there's some folks living here, and then there'll be another crackdown, and they'll they'll be moved on, and they'll have to go somewhere else, like maybe along Alimony Boulevard, for example, which is a, another long-standing place, and then you know they'll come back here, <laughs> right? The, the point is that they, they don't really have anywhere to go. I mean. I describe people leaving eventually because they were so sick of being being moved around here. But uh, actually, I think more people ended up losing their vans, which oh. was... Then they would just become, you know, street homeless, so...
0: Yeah, it definitely costs money to keep a van operating. Um,
1: and often they didn't work very well, and so it's incredibly hard to move them for these yeah. parking regulations. you got to pay license
0: know. fees and yeah. technically insurance. When you were doing your research... Um, mm-hmm straight or stoned mm-hmm. uh you took a lot of notes <laughs>
1: <laughs> i did i mean yeah. you must have
0: been a very good note taker um it makes me want to ask though uh what was it like for the people who you were you mm-hmm. were hanging out with like day in and day out right yeah. you, you were yeah. someone they got to know pretty well mm-hmm. uh to have you taking notes when they were talking or Observing, you know, occasionally showing that you were still a researcher even while you right, were... Right, right. And, and, and by the way, yeah. what you were doing is called ethnography.
1: That's right. Right? Yeah.
0: Which sounds like, uh, you know, <laughs> studying foreigners of some kind, you know? No, you're studying... totally
1: right. I mean, the origins of the word is like studying heathens, you know? It's yeah. It's, like, <laughs> yeah. it's sort of colonial enterprise, right? Yeah. So, yeah, no, I mean, it, it is a weird, uncomfortable thing. I mean, I... There was... Uh, I negotiated it differently with different people, right? So some people uh, were were just completely at ease about it and um, sort of collaborated with me in some ways. They'd be like, oh, write that down. And, you know, sort of Mm -hmm. there was this sense of gathering street stories with Mm -hmm. me kind of thing. Um, Other folks were more awkward about it, very concerned about confidentiality.
0: But the fact that you were doing so-called ethnography, Mm -hmm. studying... Um, a particular group of homeless people here in San Francisco made me want to ask do you think in some way being homeless is an ethnicity or equivalent to an ethnicity in America Mm. right now?
1: That's an interesting question. Well, yeah, I I mean, I do, I think. (laughs) Well, I, I called my first Article about it, uh, American Untouchables. You know, Mm, so it's a cast. Yeah, I mean, I think cast is perhaps the best way of thinking about it. And quite honestly, I'm, I'm still blown away by how, virulent the hatred for homeless folks is um, in San Francisco from from a, a lot of people. You know, people who in other ways are pretty progressive and tolerant, and will kind of get this viciousness and like, you know human drag and garbage you know <laughs> kinds trolls, trolls exactly yeah. all, all of that so in terms i in some ways i feel like homeless people are the, the most dehumanized group that that you can imagine um and,
0: and, and when i say is it an ethnicity
1: so if it's an ethnicity it's a an outcast one right yeah but
0: yeah yeah but well, yes,
1: I mean, people do become more alike as well. And right. that's partly what you're getting at, I think, Yeah, right? and I'm
0: also getting that there's this line, uh, like a racial line, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. when a person with a home, what do you call someone like yeah. us with a home? a housed person. A housed person encounters yeah. a homeless person. You know, you feel this line almost like a racial line. Absolutely. Like... No, it is. Uh, we belong to two different worlds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a little ill at ease. I don't know what you think of me. I don't know what the protocol is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a little scared of you. I don't, I, I'd like to know what it is from a homeless person's point of view. But mm-hmm. I think the mm-hmm. house people have all kinds of ideas and hang-ups. Uh, well, there's guilt. There's fear uh, towards someone who's mm-hmm. homeless, right? So and, like, curiosity, though, and curiosity, though, as well, right? Curiosity, yeah. So it's a lot like yeah. the encounter mm-hmm. between, let's say... Just for example, white people mm-hmm. and black people, maybe in mm-hmm. some ways,
1: right? Yeah, I mean certainly historically. Historically, you know? yeah. yeah. No, I th- I think it is, and uh, I mean I guess from my experience, um, I was surprised by how quick it was to cross that line. That folks were kind of lonely often and sick of their small circle and uh, not having other people to talk to, and they. they they really opened up to me pretty easily. Mm. I was—it's very grateful, you know. Um, I mean, sometimes I would—I would get into fairly intimate relationships with people quite quickly, and.
0: Um, Did some, you, I mean, when you say intimate, do you mean friendships or do you mean beyond? Did you have romantic relationships?
1: I had one romantic relationship, yeah, um, which. It was quite long-lasting. Um, that must be really hard, yeah. though, when
0: one person has mm-hmm. a place to live and the other doesn't. How does that work?
1: Um, well, this, this guy was living in um, one of the Tenderloin welfare hotels. Oh, okay. So he had a room. Okay. Um, and so he wasn't, I mean, I, I met him when he was a street musician. Um,
0: you were one too yourself. Yeah? That's
1: right. That's so. So I was like, I really liked the way he played the guitar. So I was like, oh, can I come play with you sometime? And so he wasn't really part of the studies. In some, uh, but then, oh, look at this. So we yeah we've just uh, coming up to someone's van here, and he's got a a sign on it saying, "Tell the truth." People in San Francisco deserve to have more free parking. We need it and we want it night and day. So you know this is clearly kind of fighting back against this these ridiculous parking restrictions which just i mean they make life so difficult for these folks living in vans and there's just no reason for it whatsoever
0: yeah um and this camper here uh has the owner's uh phone numbers uh has a teamster sticker and Mm -hmm, uh mm -hmm. it looks to be um an ID card. Uh, someone who's a contractor. So This person, mm-hmm. you know, is saying, mm-hmm. saying, "I'm a, I'm a working person." Worker. Yeah.
1: I probably, you know, I can't afford to live anywhere else. I've got my recycling and my barbecue on the back of my truck. Leave hey, me alone,
0: people. Do you know? I mean, in, in uh, Santa Cruz, uh, where I'm based, it's illegal to sleep in your car. It's simply illegal. It's not just mm-hmm. a, a matter of violating in, parking. It is in
1: many, many American towns. Yeah. Is it
0: in San Francisco?
1: Um, I don't know if it is right now. Sorry, I keep not knowing things for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, it was not illegal when I was doing this research. Um, people would still get harassed for it, though, and asked to move on, which is, you know, I'd, but they wouldn't get tickets for it. So it was sort of like a, it was, basically, it was a sign that you were a homeless person, and that, therefore, you didn't have the same rights as other people, which mm-hmm. is, you know, how all of this policing stuff works. You mm-hmm.
0: know. Um, so you were talking about your relationship with this guy. From, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, so in some ways,
1: he wasn't. He wasn't really like part of the study to start off with. I mean, and he was only ever part of it as as a kind of bodyguard and helpmate kind of thing. But he really was part of that scene. And when I realized. I, when I realized I wanted to study the hustling folks in the Tenderloin, as well as this recycling scene and the, and the dumpster divers, then he became really important in that in that way. Mm. But yeah, no, it was a, it was a very difficult relationship. It was great, but it was like fraught with tension because of the inequalities. You know,
0: it's, is that what ended it?
1: Um, yeah, yeah, I would say so. Um, different expectations about what was going on, really, but. I mean, we didn't, it didn't actually end so much. I mean, we, we, we remained extremely close friends. Hmm. And, hmm. Um, you know, I, uh, I helped him find a, deep, a better place to live and hmm. was, yeah, a close friend of his till he died. So.
0: And this is the Seventh Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm Robert Polly. Today, a walk through San Francisco's Dog Patch neighborhood with the sociologist Teresa Gowan. She spent a number of years working with and writing about a community of homeless people in Dogpatch. That community is now largely disbanded due to city efforts to clear the area of homeless. Teresa and I talked about the reasons why that happened as she took me down to the shoreline along San Francisco Bay, where one of the main homeless camps used to be. That spot has now been turned into a park. People take hikes down here.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, it's it's really it's nice and... and it, it, definitely cleaned up from how it used to be. Um, I've seen this, I've seen this uh, warm water cove park go through a lot of different stages. Now, um, let, let me just show you a little bit of what's sure. going on here. So in the early 90s, there was a lot of bushes and trees in here, like more thick undergrowth than there is now. And so it was a really great pe- place for people to live. They could hide, hide away and feel quite safe. So there was, there were several large camps in here, but also people on their own. Um, one of the guys I knew really well had um, a, a sort of a little shanty down here and
0: you know, what we 're looking you, at here is a, i mm-hmm. guess a, a slough, I guess you 'd call it, uh, <laughs> where the tide comes in and out, yep. a mud flat, it's and a little uh, mud flat. yeah, a little mud flat. you saying a guy had a shanty what down
1: yeah, like it was right down kind of like on on the beach area there, uh-huh. just just above the waterline. and in this area, just as, like, many parts of San Francisco, there was this interface between people who were, like, super poor and bohemian types, right? And sometimes pretty fruitful interactions and people who were really, like, on both sides of that. Um, so out here, would, there was there was all of these um, well-established camps of people without cars, even. Um, but there was also, uh, like, free punk shows and stuff you know it like was there was some festival they put on out here called i think maybe like the angry bird festival or something like that i remember i remember seeing tribe eight out here yeah
0: but but probably an area that uh city um officials would have said a blighted area right oh totally and, and yeah. what blighted area means mm-hmm. to them is it's ugly and there's maybe some crime or mm-hmm. homelessness and I'm gathering from what you're saying that for homeless people, a blighted area is actually one of the few places they can maybe oh, yeah. find a little security. You Absolutely, know, a little place to sleep it was a
1: refuge. Yeah, no, that, that's really well put. Just, the irony is that the places where these folks were able to build community and actually, you know, keep keep each other safe a little bit were the most blighted parts of the city, just precisely because they were able to um, be there long enough to get to know each other well enough to 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 get community and trust going. So, I mean, here, I thought it was remarkable because there was a lot of criminal folks living here, uh, people who'd, you know, done, done a lot of time for property crimes, for example. And yet they really didn't rip each other off, uh, you know. It was it would happen occasionally and they would re- they would get rid of those people, you know.
0: Oh, <laughs> it so was, there was self-policing. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, no, very much so.
0: So, I mean, the question I've been waiting to answer, we're wandering this area where you used to come and be with and Mm -hmm. study Mm -hmm. this uh you know homeless community down Mm -hmm. here Uh, and we haven't seen anybody other than a a few um you know campers in winnebago's rvs where people are living just a few Mm -hmm. What, what happened to everybody my
1: understanding was that what happened was that uh this one group of guys who shall remain absolutely nameless um they ripped off these new muni-buses which came in from Italy, and they, they pulled the aluminum off of the the rims and sold it, and which was an idiotic thing to do. And that was the reason that they kind of put the energy into clearing this area.
0: So that was a crackdown after that?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was just such a stupid thing to do. So everybody- And the others were just... Furious.
0: People about were it. just cleared out of here. All mm-hmm. the camps are gone. I mean, there's no camps in, in evidence here. Well, it's
1: it's it's really hard to have a camp if you don't have any privacy, right? And so yeah. Um, so when
0: they cut down all the bushes and yeah grass, mm-hmm. there's nowhere to hide.
1: No, there's nowhere to hide. But so I can describe to you a bit. Um, like one one of the camps that I I knew well here was the these guys um, who were known like Quentin's crew. At least that was the, the name I changed. Um, Quentin's name too, and <laughs> these guys were very creative, they, they had a, an elaborate camp with Christmas lights, and a skeleton, and all sorts of stuff going on out here, and they, they would have parties, they had a margarita party, and invited the whole, basically the whole area to come to it. So they they really made the best of being homeless. It was they were kind of inspiring figures, and I guess they were really examples of what I was talking about—that sort of interface between Bohemia and pure deprivation. And you know, they they really they came from very different backgrounds. You know, the, the, this guy Quentin was 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 one of the rare people who was like an educated guy on the street and very interesting person. But you know, the the others had you know, long problems with incarceration and mental health problems, whatever. But they they just kind of, they loved this idea that they were hunter-gatherers out here and that they would, you know, go find cool things and, you know, beautify their camps. So, like, you know, I, I really miss those guys.
0: You know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm thinking that if this was a neighborhood of actual official homes that had been cleared for urban renewal or something, mm-hmm. you know, at least a certain part of the population might come and say, what a what a tragedy, what a sad thing mm-hmm. that people mm-hmm. were driven out of their neighborhood. Of course, if this was a homeless encampment, which you say it was,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it's all gone, there's no sign of it left. Uh, most people would just celebrate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and say, good riddance, you Got know. Get rid of the trash. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, and often when they talk about cleaning up trash, they talk about cleaning up homeless people sort of in the same breath, you know, like there's no need to really differentiate, you know, yeah, this place used to have a lot of garbage. Yeah, and there was homeless folks here, and they're gone too, and it's all part of the same process, you know, they're they're Mm. dirt, you know.
0: And and that attitude, though, your book has a a nice sort of capsule history of American attitudes toward the homeless, and they haven't always been that, that harsh, I mean... I remember when I was young reading Cannery Row and Sweet Thursday by John Steinbeck mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. there was a community of hobos or bums or whatever he called them. I think he called them bums, actually. Right. And, and they were lovable guys and, you know, their stories were entertaining. Well, yeah, I mean... I, it, was that an attitude <laughs> of that era? You know, the hobo... I mean, mm. in the old movies I used to watch, the hobo was kind of a... You know, not not a real dangerous figure. A guy might steal a pie from a windowsill. That's about it, though. Might also uh, sweep your, or, or uh, rake your, your lawn or something, you know?
1: I think it really depends on the period. And I, it, it's a complicated thing because in in the 30s, there was a, a lot of hatred of homeless people. Um,
0: During the Depression?
1: Yeah. I mean, we see now the Depression as uh, being this sort of time when homelessness was seen as a, a sign of the banker's, Evolve and yeah, it could happen and, to anybody, right? But but it wasn't actually like that at the time, you know. There, there was, uh, I mean, in California was was perhaps the worst place of the lot because so many people came here for work and they would get beaten up on their on the on the trains, you know. The, the Southern Pacific was driving thousands of people off the trains every month, you know. And some of the places, the border of California, the, the townspeople would just come and you know. Attack everybody on the train to stop them from coming into the state. And, you know, in, in the cities, like in, in L.A., I know they had, uh, they just had regular police sweeps. they pick up every single homeless person and put them in jail for a month. So I think, well, we, you know, we, we've been very affected by the Grapes of Ross, you know, which is... A core curriculum for every American. Could you still, say, I <laughs> <laughs> oh, you say wrath? Over oh, say wrath. Oh yeah, sorry. You guys say wrath. <laughs> the grapes of wrath. <laughs> yeah, and and Darcy Lang's pictures. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. There, it, was,
0: there was a time when, first of all, so many people were driven into poverty that nobody felt uh, that it was a sin. You know, that it was uh, no, but, a failing. But some
1: people did think it was a sin. This is the thing. Like even through the Depression, you know. My my understanding of it is that it's only in retrospect that we have this real domination of uh, a, a, a sort of systemic analysis of poverty and the depression that... You know, at the time, it was a lot more complicated than that. I mean, if you look at the, look at the academic studies from the time, it's all about the psychopathology of the homeless man. You know?
0: Oh, just like, like now.
1: Yeah, like what are, they, what are their psychiatric issues? You know, they had somewhat different names for them. During
0: the Depression? Yeah. When uh, <laughs> all these, at least, you know, again, I'm totally influenced by Steinbeck and other
1: right, storytellers, right. but
0: when all these honest working types mm. uh, were turned into, you know, transients by, mm-hmm. by the Great Crash and the, the depression. You're saying that mm-hmm. at the time, though, people weren't really they were, that ma- They were very
1: different representations. So, of course, you had Steinbeck, um, but then you also had um, you know, Tobacco Road,
0: mm-hmm. um, which- Images of degraded the, po- poverty, yeah. Yeah,
1: just, you know, these yeah. sort of incestuous, degenerate, you know, yeah, southern, dumb, That's sort of Southern Gothic,
0: yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. that,
1: that was uh, incredibly popular play, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? Yeah so
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and like I say, that you know the, these camps they were doing studies on people to figure out what, what all of their problems were, mm-hmm. um, especially the camps for male transients on their own so
0: um, were there times in American history though when there was a you know more generous attitude or an idea that hey, um, anybody in the middle class could find themselves on the streets, you know and and there wasn't this stark uh, moral division between. People who succeeded and people who failed.
1: Well, I think that the Depression and the the more progressive uh, representations of homeless folks in the in the Depression did help to create that kind of idea, like a movie like Sullivan's Travels, for example. Sure, sure. So, you know, Best it's, it's very, very important. But I don't think it was ever totally dominant. And what uh-huh. it turns into after after the Second World War um, is situation where you don't really have much mass homelessness anymore and therefore people aren't, aren't feeling threatened about it so much so it's easier for them to take on this more charitable and even romantic attitude
0: oh so you're saying when in general people are better off mm-hmm. they're more charitable and when times get tough they're harsher in their view of, of people who are in poverty
1: yes I'm, I'm not saying the wealthy i'm not saying anything about wealthy people in particular but i'm saying that when you don't have like large numbers of people who are, you know, leading these very gruesomely kind of painful lives right in front of you, being homeless, that, you know, that that sense of guilt that you were talking about earlier, you know, and sort of all of the the uncomfortableness that it, it, it creates in the house population kind of goes away and therefore there can be this kind of like, oh, the romance of the road <laughs> and the beats were very important in this, you know, the, on the road and mm-hmm. um, how you know, sort of picking up Walt Whitman's sort of strand of, you know, like just sort of wandering America and soaking up everything, you know from. Oh yeah, this, I
0: mean <laughs> you, you have the um, maybe demeaning label transient. On the other hand, to say rambling man sounds totally romantic. Exactly.
1: Yeah? Exactly.
0: Uh, and <laughs> drifter so you, doesn't sound so good, but No,
1: drifter has <laughs> definitely got criminal common connotations, uh, which is interesting, right?
0: <laughs> when but, did the term homeless become popular? It wasn't always around. Well, it this, was, you know? no,
1: it wasn't. And uh, it was the policy folks in the depression started using um, homeless and uh, along with transient oh. But it wasn't—it wasn't like the term that everybody started using at that time. It was still more like tramps or okies, you know, those kinds of words. So really, it's the activists um, of the early '80s who managed to stamp that label on what was going on. And it's kind of
0: antiseptic, isn't it?
1: It is antiseptic, but I think it's got. I mean, I think that we don't realize how much of a victory that was at the time for the idea that actually the problem was not having a house, right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, there is some, there's something which is inherently kind of non-judgmental about homeless, right? It's just literally homeless like carless or something, right? <laughs> uh, and,
0: and yet, you know, like all words, it accrues a feeling over time. Yeah. It's not, not what it means anymore. <laughs> so once upon a time, the word handicap was just fine, and now in yes. neutral, and now for some reason there's a stigma. Yes. Uh, same thing with homeless. I think now absolutely you definitely don't just think, oh, you mean technically the person does not own some housing. You know, it no. means it means disheveled. It means
1: exactly maybe
0: sketchy. Uh, maybe, yes, we, maybe we've dangerous, so successfully. a drug addict or yeah, mental illness. Absolutely. You
1: know? Yeah. We, I think we have so successfully stigmatized homelessness. Um, let's head towards the train station, yeah. Yeah. Um, that's it. Does it's completely lost those early meanings and, I mean, something that I've been thinking about a lot lately is how, the current anti-poverty activism in in this recession, has been very wary of touching. That third rail of homelessness so even though homelessness is going you know going up again very extensively and it's what service providers are saying all over the country and there's all of these new encampments and stuff uh the the figure that we're given is not a sort of dorothea lang type migrant mother um image it's it's the homeowner who's lost their house to foreclosure mm-hmm. you know which of course you know i'm very sympathetic to but i, I think it's it's kind of fascinating that you know, the, the people who are really suffering most massively are, are not even being spoken of because there's, it's so, well, if we start talking about homelessness, that means all of those messed up people. You poor, know? Or
0: poor. I mean, uh, you're right uh, that these words have become uh, political taboo third rail. Speaking of third rails, we're about to step on a third rail here. No, no. Uh, <laughs> it's not a third rail with the tramps. You say uh, talking about homelessness for a politician is a third rail. Well, I'd go further and say talking about poverty is because yes. y- if you listen to the dialogue right now about uh, deficit reduction and what programs get cut, Obama was talking just the other day about uh, the, the, the damage to the middle class if all these programs mm-hmm, mm-hmm. are eliminated. Yeah. I did not hear him mention the poor mm-hmm. for whom some of these programs were designed. Absolutely. You just don't even talk about it. But if you're saying there's a danger to the middle class, I'm pretty sure you're saying there's a danger that they will become poor, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which suggests that there are formerly middle class people out there that are poor. but they fall off the political map as soon as they cross that line. Exactly.
1: So your person who loses the house to foreclosure um, is a tragic figure, but you don't really want to show them in the homeless shelter, because then there really must be something wrong with them. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) So getting back to our history of American attitudes toward Mm -hmm. poverty and homelessness, you say that they were pathologizing it back in the 30s during the Depression, even when there was obviously a huge economic uh, explanation for mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a lot of people wandering around without houses. Oh, um,
1: and, and way back further than and that. way back further. So yeah. when did it
0: become pathologized? Was it always that way in some sense?
1: Um, I think that in the Great Tramp Scare in the 1870s and 80s. Yeah,
0: tell us about that.
1: I think that it I was never knew more, about that. Yeah, it was, that was more of a purely moralistic take on the problem. I think um, it there was
0: what was the tra- the great tramp yeah scare? let
1: me okay let, so so the nineteenth century was very interesting in terms of the growth of um, sin talk like I call it in the book, this sort of moralistic uh, interpretations of of homelessness. The colonists, when they came over here, they already had assumptions about um, vagrancy being a very. Sort of serious social problem which you had to kind of jump on and deal with fast. And I mean, this this is, I think, absolutely inherent to Protestantism. Martin Luther himself, you know, spent a huge amount of energy um, writing this beggar's book and promoting it all over the place, which sort of talked about um, how wandering, you know, criminals were really the, the source of all social problems. And if if, if all you could do is like fix poor people and force them to behave in one place then you'd sort of you 'd solve everything just the way drug courts are now supposed to you know clean up the whole of american crime
0: right so fifteenth sixteenth century martin luther 's time uh, they considered poverty uh, a social problem, a social ill. I thought most people were impoverished at that time. they were coming out of feudalism after all. I mean, weren't right, most people right. like dirt poor at that oh, time? Oh yeah.
1: But it was it was the idea of wandering, of not being in one in one ah. fixed place. And of course, you know, this was a big threat to the old feudal order, that mm-hmm. people would walk off from these dreadful situations as serfs and there there was, you know, all sorts of horrible punishments for serfs who ran off, like branding and stuff, you know. But as that as the feudal system started breaking down and then you have this you know, large population increases, um, diseases, you know, all, all sorts of forces sort of throwing people onto the road basically, you started getting very, very sizable kind of vagrant population. And the Catholics had basically just kind of fed people and given them um, basic shelter in, in, in the churches and the monasteries. And the, Martin Luther really saw this as being, you know, t- tied to the corruption of the of the Catholic Church. And uh, Becker's book is a fascinating it's a fascinating document. Um, so, but, so
0: are we getting into what we now call the Protestant work ethic?
1: Yeah, this whole idea that they should be they should be fixed in one place and forced to work and
0: And work will clean them up and
1: work will clean them up work will will, will free them mm-hmm. from themselves right so um, i mean the, the reason I started talking about that is i I, I think it's the so, northeast was a place where there was a lot of hostility to vagrancy um, in in the colonial era, and they were you know so just as slaves were being. <laughs> Hunted down and branded and chained up for running off in the south. Um, those, those in the north were going through, uh, you know, almost like an opposite process where they would, you know, different different towns would try to kind of shed them off to each other because mm-hmm. they didn't want to pay. They didn't want to pay anything for people's upkeep, no matter mm-hmm. how disabled or deranged they were. Um, <coughs> So they would just ship them off to the next place, and then the next place would say well you 're not one of our people." No. You know? so this is sort of these settlement laws which continue into the 20th century, and, and you know, unlike other advanced industrialized countries, the u s just doesn 't develop any kind of national welfare system for you know, able bodied adults whatsoever um, and, and continues, there's this super piecemeal local legislation which just encourages this race to the bottom, mm. right, in terms of what was provided.
0: So, so, so Teresa, mm-hmm. take us up to
1: yeah, sorry, uh, I got, I got 19th century the America,
0: villages, America the Great <laughs> Tramp Scare. You're mm-hmm. saying America already came with attitudes about poverty, that it was a right. sin, that it was a, a, yeah. a sign of, of uh, character flaws, moral failings. By the 19th century though, late 19th century in America, 1870s, you say there's something called the Great Tramp Scare?
1: Yeah and the the problem had been increasing a lot during the 19th century you had uh, a huge number of people thrown off off of their jobs in the countryside um, you know being de-skilled by industrialization basically uh, and there was a and, big depression Yeah yeah no absolutely but uh, you know even even prior to that in the 1850s there was uh, a masses of people walk, walking the roads of america looking for work and the civil war obviously mm. increased this problem A lot as well, and you you know you had you had all of these bands of ex-soldiers who really had nothing to return to. And then 1873, you have like the worst depression that ever hit America, you know, which a lot of people don't even know about. It was partly because of this instability from the war, but it was also because, you know, by this time you'd had a a lot of uh, capital being consolidated into these huge businesses, which then went bust and would throw out, you know, forty thousand people, you know, into unemployment without any kind of social protection at one point, it in one moment, right. And so it really, um, it really shook the social fabric of the states because these folks would get on the railroads. And by this point, you had a very extensive railway network, miles more extensive than it is now, right. <laughs> and, you know, all of these single folks, including like a lot of women, some of whom dressed up as guys for safety, just just wandering the country looking looking for food looking looking for work and there was a, a, an intense moral panic over it it was just like this is this is you know destroying the society these these wild people are you know, threatening our women. It, it, you know, there was there was all of this stuff about you know like the vulnerable farm woman who was going to get raped and murdered by the tramps, and you know it was just incredible the the crackdown that they have. I mean, in some New York neighborhoods, the police would just run into the neighborhood and arrest every single person on the street, including people who are sitting on their own stoops. You know, just anybody who was out there
0: in poor neighborhoods.
1: Yeah, they were just. What
0: it, was the charge? <laughs> Vagrancy. Vagrancy.
1: Right. So, I mean, people, people were getting a month, three months, even six months in some places just for having nowhere to be. <laughs> uh,
0: how, how were you officially charged with vagrancy? Um, if you could show that you live somewhere, was that uh, enough to not get charged?
1: I mean these guys who were picked up for sitting on their stoops, I think did get let go uh, if they you know ah, but, um, but
0: if they if they couldn't show a permanent address or something they, yeah, if
1: they, having no fixed address, I think was the most standard you know if you could not prove you actually lived somewhere, then wow. you were a vagrant and you know off to jail with you
0: <laughs> oh yeah, so so the, this is homelessness our history right? is a crime, yeah, yeah, uh, this goes way back
1: but I mean. I think one thing that was interesting that came out of that time was it it, it was such um, a huge and devastating blow to the working class, this depression, that um, it's really the first moment when you you get people making very strong assertive public arguments that unemployment is not a crime that vagrancy is not a crime, so in some ways it is the birth of uh, you know what, what i what I call system talk you know the idea of homelessness not being inherent in the problems of the individual person and so even even though those discourses didn 't really go anywhere at all um, in the nineteenth century uh, it, it, it becomes part of the progressive m- movement, the progressive eras sort of way, way of thinking, to, to, sort of, to see mass unemployment and homelessness as being something which needs to be engineered on a social level rather than an individual level. And so, I mean, really you get this very slow build of progressive politics um, until the New Dealers actually get into power, you know, on, on the federal level. Yeah.
0: I'm Some thinking about decades. the fact that when you're getting this thing you call system talk, which is an analysis of the economic system saying this will produce poverty. Um, it'll displace people, and there's this new instability thrown into the world with uh, early industrial capitalism. And Then you had the critiques from popular culture. We had Dickens in England, right, who mm-hmm. was hugely popular mm-hmm. in the United States as well. And, th- and in, in the 20th century, he had the most beloved figure in all of American cinema, the tramp, mm-hmm. right? Charlie Chaplin's tramp. Absolutely. And I, 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 never thought of the fact that the word tramp was a word he was sort of salvaging or rescuing from this this aura of recrimination.
1: No, absolutely. So how powerful
0: is popular culture in making people think poor isn't a crime or shouldn't be a crime? I
1: think super powerful, and I think Chaplin was a genius. I really do. And and he, and he knew exactly what he was doing. I mean, Chaplin was was a very left-wing guy. You know, um, had a lot of contact with the IWW, for example.
0: The uh, the the Wobblies, the the mm-hmm. first you know international union, uh, identified with um, socialism.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, cha- Chaplin was close to those guys when in, in New York before he was he got into film. And uh, you know, in, in the early years of the 20th century, that that union became uh, sort of captured by the hobos. There were so many hobos who were in the union that they, you know, basically. Um, they they started leading it in in 1905, and so Chaplin I think he he really um, he was so clever because his little tramp is 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 a very unthreatening figure you know, and yet he managed manages to be subversive in this gentle but devastating way.
0: And he's chased by cops. He's made fun of uh Mm -hmm. and uh kicked off street corners and all that
1: so you see you see the hostility and the arbitrary crap that poor people have to deal with in in every moment of these movies and yet um i mean he manages to make great art out of it i I, i'm i just love it
0: (laughs) you can tell me what it was like though back in you know 10 years ago or so when you were wandering this area well,
1: around here was, I mean, look look at this. We've got all of these, uh, you know, pro- probably live-work laughs is how they how they got through, right? Yeah. Um, shiny uh, monstrosities. And, you know, just a few blocks up there, it's Wine Barville. And uh, I, was, I was just amazed the other day when I went there because you know, it, it, it used to be so quiet. There were no businesses there at all. It was one ancient sort of Irish bar, and that was it.
0: So Dogpatch, which sounds pretty bad, is uh, up and coming now.
1: It, yes, it's a historic district, oh, no. and uh, <laughs> oh, yeah,
0: you got money to invest. Yep. Dogpatch is waiting.
1: That's right. No, it's. Uh, although, I mean, I do think it's it's interesting because you know there's a lot of difference from where we just were, and that yeah. and that part of it. So, just just where we um, we walked on, on the way here, there there was a place which was an old. Um, garage which hadn't been one for many years and this this one guy lived there and he had a shanty for um at least eight years well um
0: you mean like on the same place yeah
1: it was it was a classic sort of depression era type shanty just made of layers and layers of boards and Uh wooden wooden planking and he had this long hand-painted sign about Drinking your urine, <laughs> and how it's gonna make you immortal and stuff.
0: you believed in this.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. He uh. was kind of like a priest kind of character. Uh. You know, he's a an a older African American guy who would sit out there with this very intense look on his face and slung beard. You know, and sort of watch, watch everybody going by. But he's I mean, gone it's, now, huh? Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's a sign of how this, this place has changed. It, you, no one would ever be able to have that kind of stability as, you know, a, a, a homeless folk a homeless person without a car, you know.
0: You know, I'm thinking as you, as you tell me the story of this guy um, who had his own identity, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, I, somewhere in his picture of himself, it wasn't like, I'm just a homeless guy uh, and that defines me, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And your book, it's really interesting because it's, it's, it's about homelessness, but it's also about talk about homelessness. And three major narratives, right? There's sin talk, which says poverty and homelessness is a result of some moral um, lapse, some moral failing. There's sick talk, which says it's the result of some illness, like drug addiction or mental illness. Right. And there's system talk, which says, these are your terms, um, which says it's the result of the capitalist system, it's part of the whole economic structure of things. Um, and uh, you, you, you say that not only do sociologists and the public and journalists all use these ways of talking about and, and officials, of course, use these ways of talking about homelessness at various times. But the the, the homeless themselves, too, you know,
1: mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Uh, talk about themselves using these terms. It's, you know, it's my fault, I'm lazy, or I mm-hmm. made a mistake, that's sin talk. Mm-hmm. Or I'm sick, I've got a drug addiction, I've got a mental illness. Exactly. That's sick talk. Or the system did it to me, you know, mm-hmm. I couldn't compete, um, the bank, you know, foreclosed on my home, things like that. Well,
1: the city's got too yuppie for me. City,
0: yeah, prices have gone up, inflation, mm-hmm. not enough jobs. Um, and all of those, I mean, do you have a favorite? Do you have, how did you... Did you end up picking one that you thought was valid, or do you think they all have their pros and cons, or are they all bad?
1: Well, you know, I definitely came in with a, a more system talk kind of perspective, but I, I think what really um, changed my thinking on it was realizing how all of these ways of seeing homelessness did create their own reality. And that, you know, if you have, for example, with the shelter system, if you have a massive sh- system which requires people to articulate their, ni- their lives in terms of their own individual mess-ups and tragedies, then that, that's what those people become in the end, you know. And they, they become very depressed and sort of downtrodden and a bit whiny, you know, because that's, that's kind of what they're being asked to be. <laughs> And, and the same with the the prison system, you know, our, our our choice to to shift the bulk of our social spending, if you can call it social spending, towards the prison complex, you know, rather than services means that you're you're creating a bunch of people of poor people who are really brutalized, really uh, sort of aggressive, school in this dog eat dog kind of way of thinking, and that that is who they become, and. You know, I think you can counterpose it to, for example, the federally run tra- transient camps of the 30s where there was a real promotion of, um, you know, sort of decent working class culture and we're all in this together, let's pull together, you know. And that that just creates a new reality for people. People who had actually been part of the old Skid Row bum culture were transformed, I think, by some of the more... Progressive um, initiatives in the depression you know and and I saw that here on a really small scale with people moving from the Tenderloin out to Dogpatch patch and sort of moving away from the these more sort of petty criminal identities and uh, getting getting a, a more systemic analysis and and more sort of generosity towards towards the other guys out there it was It was really interesting, so I, I think it really it, it, it depends more on us than on homeless people themselves like you know what what kinds of identities are available for them to take up, and it, unfortunately, in this city, there's there's such a lack of free space, and there's so much criminalization and stigmatization of homelessness. I think it's really hard for people to hold on to um, an analysis which is, you know, more more structural, more distanced from their their own their
0: own miseries. You mm. know, mm. I'm thinking again of that comment I made earlier. Is is homelessness a new almost racial identity in America? Mm-hmm. One of the dynamics in race in America, a lot of people have commented on it, is that if you're white, you don't have to think constantly, I'm white, I'm white, I'm mm-hmm. white, I'm defined mm-hmm. by being white. If you're black, the your world is reminding you constantly, right? Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, when you're homeless, I'm, I'm thinking, maybe you think I'm homeless, I'm homeless, I'm homeless, and it's a result of one mm-hmm. of these three factors, you know, my mm-hmm. own failing, my own disease, or the system itself. I don't go around every day thinking I've got a house, I've got a house, I've got a house. I th- have a very personal biography that's all full of nuance and full of mm-hmm. personal individual details. I don't really feel like I'm part of a generalized problem or a generalized mm-hmm. situation. Yeah, Is exactly. that part of the burden of being on the outside? Do you get stuck with a, a really horribly restrictive way of talking about yourself?
1: Yeah, I really felt it. I, th- I, I could see people kind of... Um, losing those nuances and just sort of taking on these becoming these stock characters really um, it, was, it was it was kind of horrible to see in some cases you know i mean there was one mexican guy who was just a a, a lively fun young person really when he arrived and you know for a combination of physical injury and getting involved in substance abuse he just you know he became the most classic sort of miserable panhandler Mm, you know, it, yeah. it was it was just awful to see it. But I think, I mean, in general, it is true about the you know the I'm homeless, I'm homeless thing. That there is such a burden of investigation placed on each individual homeless person, as if, as if this problem has been you know created by all of these individual people's pathways. But you know, if you look at the at the you know the the, the moments when homelessness emerges and you know retreats. It's, it's all about these these broader, you know, economic movements, basically. So,
0: unemployment rate and things like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean,
1: like, in Japan, you know, they had a horrible recession in the late 80s, and suddenly there were, like, tens of thousands of people sleeping in the so- Tokyo subways. They didn't all, like, suddenly develop, you know, depression and So
0: whatever, So, you know? so uh, system talk, then, is really is the right way, in many ways, to talk about this.
1: Well, it's not... I don't... I think it's not the it's certainly not good enough on its own because if you just if you just take a system talk perspective you don't understand how much people get made by these other discourses. Mm-hmm. And I mean at least that's that's the reason I wrote the book the way I did is rather than just arguing for system talk it's like look what our ways of thinking about homelessness are doing to people who are poor mm. and and how it's kind of reducing them as human beings, you know.
0: And obviously if- I want to, uh, Oh I don't have any. Sorry. Or do you? I don't. No, no, uh, no I don't. Um, it, no. um. You know, of course, you're not denying in the book uh, that mm-hmm. some people, at least, end up on the streets because of some personal problem. Obviously, I no, mean, no, not there, not. Is crime, no. there is crime. There uh, is, there is crime. There is drug addiction. There is mental illness. Mm-hmm. And, and other, you know, matters of personal history or personal choice in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there are people who are, you know, who who will proudly say, "I'm homeless by choice." Uh, you know that I don't want to live in the crappy, you know, subsidized housing that was offered to me, or something like that. I've met people like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. there's all these different stories, but uh, it it doesn't always reduce to this simple, simple narrative of sin or uh, medical problem, or or even necessarily a systemic economic thing. Yeah.
1: No, no, it's it's definitely complicated. But I I do think that what happens on a systemic level is that. You know, when you reduce the social safety nets to the extent that we have, you actually get a, a, a big diversity of people who are vulnerable for a million different reasons, kind of just being pushed through the.
0: Yeah, let's, let's the name another one domestic abuse. Uh,
1: oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh,
0: people fleeing. Uh, when I say homeless by choice, I mean leaving their homes by choice because their homes were intolerable. Exactly. And they had to.
1: And that's true for kids just as
0: much for women. Yeah. Or, or men in some cases.
1: Yeah. No, that's right. And, and in fact, you know, a lot of these guys, I mean, I wouldn't say that they've been abused at all, but I think that uh, it was a really common narrative for men to start having problems after becoming unemployed with with their partners, and to eventually split up with them, and and that would be like the, the precipitating moment into homelessness. I just here we
0: are looking for homeless encampments, and I seeing someone with a manicured poodle coming our way. Yeah,
1: exactly. Things have go. really changed. We get manicured po- poodle, but up there you'll still see that there's like a big old camp up under this freeway here. <laughs>
0: Let's check it so, out. Yeah. How yeah. do you get to it?
1: And, you know, here's They've the
0: tried way. to fence it off. Oh, I see. There's a break um, in the yeah. fence.
1: There's a way in there. So. You, yeah. Shall we go?
0: Yeah. 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 And we did go through that hole in the fence, and we discovered where some of Dog patches, remaining homeless are living now. The story picks up on the next Seventh Avenue project. I'm Robert Polly. Bye until then. Tramp, 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 keep on a tramping. Nothing doing here for you. Well, if I catch you around again, you will wear the ball and chain. So just keep on tramping, the best thing you can do. Down the street he met a cop, and the copper made him stop. And he asked him, when did you blow into town? Come with me up to the judge, but the judge, he said, Oh, fudge bums that have no money needn't come around. So it's tramp, 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 keep on a-tramping. There's nothing doing here for you. And if I catch you around again, you will wear the ball and chain. So just keep on tramping, the best thing you can do.